you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two. I'm Austin Cross, in for A. Martinez. Orange County's district attorney faces a new challenger, and he's calling himself a reform candidate. We'll hear from him. Also ahead, I'll tell you the story of Charles and Willa Bruce. Back in the 1920s, they set up a thriving resort in Manhattan Beach, only to have it ripped away because they were black. Now their descendants want justice. That's ahead. From the One Broadcast Center, this is Take Two. I'm Austin Cross in for A. Martinez. So good to be with you on this Tuesday. Coming up. These people were the founders, pretty much, of Manhattan Beach. The story of Bruce's Beach, a resort property that was taken from its black owners through eminent domain back in the 1920s. Well, now L.A. County is trying to give it back. That's just ahead. But first, let's go to Orange County, where a new face in politics just announced his run for district attorney. Orange County needs a new day, new leadership. And that, my friends, new and old, is why we're here today. Well, that there is attorney Peter Hardin. He is at 42, young, a former Marine, though once a Marine, always a Marine. He's also a former prosecutor. Hardin is running as a reform candidate and has not been shy about his criticism of current OCDA Todd Spitzer, who he says is not living up to promises he's made to do better in a department that's been touched by controversy over the past few years. Well, Peter Hardin is with me now. Welcome to Take Two. Good afternoon, Austin, and, and thank you for calling me young. That makes me makes me feel good. After <laughs> trying to keep up with my eight-year-old son recently. I feel very old. I'm sure that's a lot. Well, straight out of the gate, Peter Hardin, Why are you running for DA? Look, our current district attorney down here in Orange County provides us with showmanship, not leadership. Uh, He's a career politician uh, who has used his office over the years for his own personal gain. And the predictable result is that his office is adrift, uh, rudderless in a sea of scandals. I'm running to bring justice with integrity, accountability and transparency to an office and uh, a county that desperately needs it. And moreover, I'm bringing, uh, I'm running to bring our criminal justice system into the 21st century. Well, now you seem like a bit of a newcomer to Orange County. It looks like you arrived in 2012 after a stint at Camp Pendleton while you were a Marine. So in your relatively short time in the OC, what do you see as the biggest issues in the DA's office and the criminal justice system more broadly that you think needs fixing and that you can fix? Sure. Well, look, we've created a revolving door criminal justice system here in Orange County, just like we have in many other places throughout the country. Uh, We punish people uh, time and again for uh, low-level nonviolent offenses with ever-increasing levels of punishment, expecting a different result. And um, that creates uh, this broken revolving door system that leaves people, uh, communities, and, and families broken in its path. And that, in turn, drives crime and homelessness in our communities. Uh, There are a number of initiatives that I will put into place as our next district attorney to bring our uh, justice system into the 21st century, uh, including reforming uh, juvenile justice, cash bail, death penalty, um, all things that that I'm happy to to get into uh, with you or another time when we have more time. 
I certainly do want to ask you about a few things that we do have a limited amount of time. Let me ask you about a current DA, Todd Spitzer. You just mentioned him, and just last month he announced guidelines to address what's been called systemic racism throughout the criminal justice system. You have called that just empty words. So what do you propose to do better? Well, Todd Spitzer uh, is is known to put his finger up in the wind and, and go wherever wherever it blows him and then uh, not really do anything about it. So uh, I've I've got concrete ideas for what to do about this stuff, and he just has guiding principles. Um, systemic racism is a, a real issue in our criminal justice system, and we do need to address it. The first place we should start is by talking about uh, reforming juvenile justice. Uh, studies clearly show that kids from uh, communities of color and less affluent uh, communities suffer uh, more than kids from white and, and more affluent uh, communities. And um, we pay an archaic price for having our, well, I should back up and say that Orange County uh, is unfortunately sends more kids to adult court than any other county in California. And we pay a, a, a big price for this archaic practice when kids uh, spend their formative years behind bars. They learn from more hardened offenders. And uh, again, studies tell us that when they get out, they lash out. And their recidivism rates are always always higher. So, Peter Harden, what do you plan to do? Well, uh, we need to institute more community programs on the front end to ensure that uh, kids never end up touching the criminal justice system in the first place. You know, we uh, have spent years uh, sort of building up this mass incarceration system that siphons funds away from things that we know prevent crime, strong public school education, after school programs and supervision, drug and alcohol treatment centers, uh, job placement programs. Uh, these are the things that we need to turn our attention to. The district attorney is you know, one, one of the, if not the single highest elected position in this county. And uh, under my administration, I will take a much more expansive approach and work with all the stakeholders in our community, from law enforcement to teachers to union leaders across the board, uh, to ensure that we are uh, creating a system that's fair and more equitable for everyone. It works for everyone. I'm Austin Cross in for A. Martinez today, and I'm talking with Peter Hardin. He's running as a reform candidate in Orange County for the DA spot against Todd Spitzer. Your run has drawn comparisons to L.A.'s new district attorney, George Gascon. He came out of the gate after being elected last fall with a lot of suggested reforms, like eliminating enhancements that add extra time to people's sentences. We're actually going to have a story about that in just a few minutes here, but would you pursue similar moves? Look, Austin, there's no doubt that sentencing enhancements can result in unnecessarily long prison uh, sentences. No, no doubt about that. Uh, George Gascon's approach has uh, apparently been to, to take a, a blanket uh, axe to, to, to those um, enhancements. I, I will take a more uh, nuanced approach. I think we need to take a close look at where it makes sense to include enhancements and where not. Um, but I do think we, as, as a society and a, a justice system throughout the country, need to take a close look at the manner in which we're using sentencing enhancements. And I'm troubled about, at prosecutors' sort of reflexive, automatic attitude towards charging everything that they possibly can to start from a position of strength in negotiations. That's not, that's not doing real justice. That's not working together with the defense bar and courts to ensure that uh, the, the justice is being done. I want to get in a few more things while I have you here. You did mention cash bail earlier. What is your current position on cash bail? 
Cash bail is unnecessary and unfair, Austin. It allows wealthy, dangerous defendants to buy their freedom, while less affluent defendants who may pose no risk to public safety languish behind bars. Uh, and the consequences of that are, are significant. Even a couple of weeks in pretrial detention can cost someone from a less affluent community their job, their, uh, their, their home, their family. And then we, uh, when, they, when they finally get out, we're not giving them any tools to get back out uh, on their feet. And so what do you think is going to happen? Uh, and that's how our, our, our crime and, and uh, our homeless rates go up. So I will work to end cash bail. Uh, and we've got to end this practice of punishing people for their socioeconomic status. It's, uh, it's not befitting of our, of our 21st century society. I know that you spoke recently with one of our reporters, uh, Frank Stoltz, and he asked you about police shootings. And if there are any shootings in Orange County where you think the officers should have been prosecuted, you said that you're not aware of any. Since you two spoke, are there any situations that you've seen? And then I also want to tack on here in the brief amount of time that we have, if it, is, it does appear that a police officer did uh, do something wrong, do you support prosecuting them? In, in cases uh, where police officers have broken the law, I, I will hold them accountable and prosecute them to, to the fullest extent of the law. Look, as a Marine Corps officer, I saw how a small percent, a Marine Corps officer and a judge advocate, a, a prosecutor, trial counsel, I saw how a small percentage of people uh, can ruin the image of, of one of America's great institutions. Uh, same is true in, in, uh, in our police departments across uh, Orange County. By and large, uh, Police are, are, do the right thing and are heroes, but there are bad apples among them, and the good ones want the bad ones gone. Uh, I'll have the courage to uh, stand up and, and lift up the heroic ones and to prosecute the ones who break the law. That's Peter Hardin. He's running for attorney, uh, district attorney in Orange County. Thank you so much, Peter, for making the time and joining us today. Thank you, Austin, for covering this. I appreciate it. You have a great day. Of course. Now let's turn to Frank Stoltz. I mentioned him earlier. He is KPCC's criminal justice reporter who's been following Hardin's run for the DA, and he's typing hard because he's covering the news for you. Frank, you've also spoken to Hardin. What stood out to you in your talks with him and in the conversation that you just heard there? Well, first of all, the typing is actually recorded, and I just have it running all the time, (laughs) whether or not I'm typing. (laughs) Uh, you know, the, the most obvious thing is he's a newcomer to politics, right? You know, he's unpolished. And, you know, as you pointed out, he's also new to Orange County. He's lived there just nine years. And when you think about it, he is relatively new to prosecutions. He spent just a year in the OCDA's office and another year in the U.S. Attorney's office. But other than that, he spent about four years in private defense work. And then, of course, most of his work nearly a decade in practicing military law. So, uh, you know, across the country, we've seen uh, non-prosecutors elected as DAs, even former criminal defense attorneys. Uh, So the politics, uh, Austin, around DA elections has changed a lot, you know, and his uh, inexperience doesn't necessarily mean he can't get elected. I can't imagine, though, that there would be people, probably more of the conservative side, who are looking at what George Gascon has done, and a lot of them are kind of uncomfortable with some of those moves. I mean, what is your impression and how he would handle himself as the DA. Is he kind of sounding like Gascon light to you? Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Gascon sort of uh, casts a, a, a long shadow now uh, and his policies and the controversy over them. You know, no, uh, he, he is not a Gascon. Uh, he appears to be much more of a middle of the road guy. He told you and me that he wants to fashion something that works in Orange County, not L.A., uh, 
And for example, uh, while he opposes the death penalty and wants to end cash bail like Gascon, like he told you, uh, he would use uh, life in prison without the possibility of parole for the most serious crimes. And that's something Gascon doesn't do. So, yeah, I, I don't know if he's Gascon light, but he's certainly not Gascon. Well, let me just ask you really quickly about the dynamics of this race, because during Hardin's campaign announcement, which just happened at about 1230 today, he had a lineup of people critical of current OCDA Todd Spitzer. And I'm really curious right now, is he vulnerable in this race? It's really hard to tell. Uh, there are some controversies brewing. Uh, some families of victims uh, say his office has failed to treat them with respect. There is a sex harassment uh, lawsuit against him, uh, claiming that uh, he knew there was some sex harassment going on uh, by a guy in the office that he did not address. Hmm. Uh, and then the, there's the big issue of the, the DNA database, the UC Irvine. Uh, civil rights law, uh, civil rights clinic has, has uh, you know, filed a lawsuit trying to get the DA's DNA la- uh, la- uh, lab uh, database uh, shut down. So, you know, th- there are these controversies brewing. But again, um, you know, Harden faces an uphill battle. He's a newcomer. No name recognition. Uh, and we'll see what happens. That's KPCC's Frank Stoltz. Frank, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. You can read more about Hardin's positions in a Q&A that Frank did with him on our website, laist.com. That's L-A-I-S-T dot com. Well, now to the policies of Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon. He's proposed a number of reforms since being elected last fall, like reducing the sentences of those who have been in prison for years. Now, such a policy would have a direct effect on thousands of people, including a guy named Reginald Wheeler. We introduced you to him yesterday. You might remember. Wheeler has served 36 years for a street robbery, partly because he received an enhanced sentence. We talked about those earlier, too. Now, in the second installment of a two-part story, KPCC's Robert Garova explores why Wheeler keeps getting turned down for parole. On November 15, 1983, Reginald Wheeler and an accomplice robbed Mark West on a South L.A. street of his wristwatch and about $14 in cash. Wheeler forced West to walk about 100 feet away from the street when he robbed him. Because of that, prosecutors added a charge of aggravated kidnapping. Wheeler ended up with a sentence of eight years to life. Speaking from the California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo, Wheeler says it's not fair the parole board keeps turning him down, although he acknowledges he hasn't had a spotless record. So I've had some write-ups for disciplinary reasons, but uh, no violence. Over the years, Wheeler was found to have violated the rules once for having marijuana and once for trying to smuggle drugs into prison. Back in 1988, he stole a radio. He had two violations of being over-familiar with staff and two more for having a cell phone. At Wheeler's most recent parole hearing in 2018, a deputy district attorney pointed to the string of rules violations in describing Wheeler's record in prison as abysmal. The board turned him down and scheduled his next parole hearing for 2025, although Wheeler can petition to have it sooner. Nazgul Ghanoush is an analyst at the Sentencing Project, which advocates for criminal justice reform. She says parole denials for nonviolent rules violations overlook the reality of life in prison. Someone who's been in prison for over 30 years on a sentence that they might have expected to be 10, 15 years maximum, 
And if they're using drugs, if they are not as polite as the guards would like them to be, if they're using a cell phone to stay connected to family members and loved ones, is it that shocking? The parole board did not respond to a request for comment. The state prisons department says that in 2019, about one in three people in state prison were granted parole after a hearing. Keith Watley is executive director of Uncommon Law, a legal services organization. The parole board is generally inclined toward finding any possible reason to deny someone parole. He believes part of the reason parole has declined so often is because the majority of parole board commissioners have backgrounds in law enforcement. There's a problem with the lack of cultural competency in that you have commissioners who are unable to understand the lives of the people appearing before them. Watley says an exchange at Wheeler's most recent parole hearing illustrates his point. Wheeler was trying to explain to the presiding commissioner why keeping track of him was hard for his mother, who had 13 kids. The transcript shows the commissioner then asked, quote, your mom reproduced too much to be able to parent? You see a commissioner who seems to be showing utter disdain for the people in the communities most directly impacted by incarceration and blaming the victims of systemic oppression and and racism for their own condition. D.A. Gascon has ordered his office to review cases of people who have served at least 15 years to determine whether the original sentences were too long. If his prosecutors decide that a sentence was overly harsh, they'll petition a judge to release the individual. Reginald Wheeler and his family are hoping that's what happens to him. The DA's office said it couldn't comment since it's still putting the new review unit together. I met with several of Wheeler's relatives outside a library in Bellflower recently to discuss the case. Tang Wheeler is his oldest niece. He's not alone. He's never been alone. We've rode with him for the last 40 years. I also spoke with Wheeler's sister, Tracy. There's no light on him. It's like he's almost forgotten about. As she spoke, she gripped a manila envelope that held her latest letter to the DA. She's hoping this time the family's plea will be heard. Covering criminal justice, I'm Robert Garova. Coming up, you know, when you think back about the historic L.A. riots of the early 1990s, you might often think that the beating of Rodney King and the acquittal of the police officers that beat him was the flashpoint, right? But as with most things race-related, there's more to the story. 30 years ago today, a 15-year-old black girl named Natasha Harlins was killed by a convenience store owner in South L.A. When we come back, we will learn about her life and the role her death played in shaping Los Angeles history. That's ahead. You're listening to Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on the KPCC app. I'm Austin Cross, in for A. Martinez. If you know the name Latasha Harlins, you probably know how she died. 30 years ago to the day, she went to the store to buy a bottle of orange juice. While inside the store, the owner, Soon Ja Du, accused her of shoplifting. An argument ensued, and after Harlan set the bottle down and turned to leave, Du shot her in the back of the head. Harlan's died holding $2 in her hand. A year later, the judge presiding over Du's trial sentenced the former store owner to probation community service, and a $500 fine. Now, members of the black community, 
They were outraged. That was a feeling that would be amplified a week later, after four Los Angeles police officers were acquitted in the beating of Rodney King. The death of Harlins and the acquittal of the officers were the sparks that would ignite the powder cake that was South Los Angeles at the time, still reeling from the war on drugs. The black community would soon take to the streets in what we now call the L.A. riots. The King beating is widely believed to have started that uprising, but Harlan's death played a big part, too. Joining me to discuss is Marcus Anthony Hunter, an African-American studies professor at UCLA, and he's here to talk about why it's important that we know Latasha Harlan's in the context of the L.A. riots and as a person. Marcus Hunter, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you for having me. Well, take us back to March of 1991. I was living in Los Angeles at the time, but what was going on in black Los Angeles at the time of Latasha Harlan's death? Yeah, I think you get the convergence of a number of federal, local and state policies all converging in South Los Angeles. You have a war on drugs, Hmm. a war on poverty, and you also have gang injunctions. So you have numerous different surveillance and apparatus around Black communities that have them in high surveillance and low resource. At the time, also, though, a lot of Koreans were immigrating to the United States in large numbers, and many of them settled in predominantly Black communities in South Central Los Angeles, and many would open up and operate convenience stores. So talk to me about that dynamic then between the store owners and the customers that they often served. Yeah, that's a great point. And what it really augments is part of what we see and what happened to uh, Latasha Harlins is when folks are fed a steady diet of anti-Blackness and racism, Mm. they're led to believe things, including giving permission for violence against Black children. I mean, just three months earlier, Latasha had just turned 15. She's a New Year's baby. So she had just turned 15 on January 1st of that year. So we're talking about a teenage girl who had just recently had a birthday living in a community where many of the business owners are fed a diet that Black people are dangerous, Black people are violent. If they're in your store, they're in there to steal things, to feed their crack addiction, all of these lies about the Black condition that really foment the seeds of violence that would befall her in that store. In many ways, Marcus Hunter, it actually sounds like it was really an international problem because people would turn on the TV and the first thing that they would see on the news was these really terrible stories out of places like South Los Angeles, out of Chicago, uh, that are relating to things like like drugs and police crackdowns and things like that. And, you know, it just didn't really work very well when these people would end up coming to America and they would see it and they'd maybe even see some things in person. It just kind of all culminated in this one terrible moment. How did Black Angelinos react to the killing of Latasha Harlins? Black Angelinos were devastated. I mean, again, it's important to underscore that this young woman had just turned 15, you know, no earlier than three months earlier. And she was just in the store with the money in her hands. And the ultimate question that really caused all of the shock and outrage was not only just her age, but whatever she was being accused of, if it had been true, did it warrant the loss of her life? Because ultimately she died in the store. Well, within a week of each other, the judge in Harlan's case gave her shooter, Soon Ja Du, no jail time 
while a jury acquitted the four LAPD officers who brutally beat Rodney King. Both of those incidents were caught on video. There's a whole thing I want to ask you about in just a couple minutes. But that acquittal is what is popularly thought to have set off the L.A. riots. So I want to know, how much of a role did Harlan's death play in contributing to that uprising? A lot of folks, especially my wonderful colleague, Brenda Stevenson, Mm -hmm. who wrote a wonderful book on Latasha Harlan's and a contested murder of Latasha Harlan's, have illustrated that you don't really have a real understanding or appreciation for the events that unfolded that at the time were really called the Rodney King riots. So there was a whole reframing that had to happen in order to understand the origin of Black discontent fomenting in the death and murder of Latasha Harlan's. In fact, part of what's also important is the geography of the LA riots as they're now understood or the LA uprisings is that part of the major narrative that came out of them is all of this uh, destruction of Korean businesses throughout the black community. And I was a 10 year old living in Philadelphia at the time. And I remember watching the news and a lot of the news really focused on why are they destroying these businesses in their community? Why are they harming these Koreans? They have nothing to do with the white police officers and the white police who are doing this. And it is to say without that understanding of Latasha Harlan's and the sordid and tenuous relationship between black consumers and Korean business owners in that community, then it does seem like, oh, why are they doing that? In fact, part of what you wind up seeing is the businesses that are benefiting from our dollars, plus the police who are supposed to protect and serve us have collectively failed us and treat us like enemies of the state. When you have that overall story, it helps to erase the lie that her life didn't matter and thus didn't help to create and catalyze that major uprising. But two, also to understand that's why you see the destruction of certain kinds of businesses, because there was already that existing tension because of the death of Latasha Latasha Harlan. It also says something to me, Marcus, about just the value of having very accurate news coverage, because it's about how the story is being interpreted, right? And the way that these words were actually getting out to the public, they were being framed in one way, which wasn't really entirely accurate, was it? Correct. I mean, there's a proverb from Ghana that I love to use because it's so meaningful. A lie can destroy 1,000 truths. You know, that one lie that everything that was happening in LA was just all about the lack of conviction for Rodney King really did not tell the full truth and thus made a lot of the actions from many people who watched from afar, as I did in Philadelphia, try to make it make sense using narratives that didn't actually align with what the community had been going through. And also importantly here is by the time you get to a Rodney King case and conviction, this is a community that's been activated and mobilizing, asking for justice beginning with Latasha Harlins. And even before that, if we think back even into the 60s and the Watts riots. We're talking to Marcus Anthony Hunter, African-American studies professor at UCLA, about the life and death of Latasha Harlins 30 years ago today. And Marcus, for a while there, Latasha Harlins, as you mentioned, is kind of unknown or forgotten in the popular imagination. But that started to change with a book by UCLA's Brenda Stevenson, who you mentioned. She's wonderful, definitely a friend of the show. And this book was about her life and death. And then there was a Netflix short documentary that came out last year that was nominated yesterday for an Oscar, in fact. So let's ask you this, 30 years from the day that she was killed, who was this young girl, Latasha Harlins? She was your daughter. She was a cousin. She was a future aunt. She was someone's future partner. 
She was a young girl who loved being a young girl. You know, she was also a, a Black great migrant. She had actually arrived in Los Angeles at a younger age from East St. Louis in Illinois. So she also represents the kind of end of what we formally think of as the great migration. So she's one of mm. the last great migrants to Los Angeles. And what I love about both the work of Brenda Stevenson and also Sophia Nolly Allison, who's nominated for the Oscar Love Song for Latasha, is in both of their works, what they try to do very successfully is remind us that she was a young girl whose life was worth living and should be here today. You know, I think that should not be lost on folks. And I also think part of what we're seeing in many ways, I think as we fan out 30 years later, is history sort of repeating itself with some sorts of corrections because just three years after Latasha Harlins passes away, Breonna Taylor is born into the world. And we just celebrated that anniversary just a couple of days earlier. And it's almost similar conditions. You know, a young black woman for no good reason winds up without her life, you know, and the idea is fast forward. Most people come into the awareness about this kind of brutality through the lens of George Floyd, but Breonna Taylor had already lost her life months before. So it has that similar dynamic of why is it that black women's lives wind up not getting the kind of attention that it deserves. And when attention is given, why don't we see that loss of a black woman's life as the catalyst that it is? Well, I only have about 30 seconds left, but I really want to ask you, because you mentioned Breonna Taylor, what is the one big thing that we still must learn in the wake of Latasha Harlan's death as a society? Yeah, I think it's an, uh, a shout out to my other colleague, Kimberly Crenshaw, is that we have to say her name. We have to say their names. We cannot just think that because it was horrific and because it was devastating that people will remember that it is important to remember that there are Black girls who are unprotected, whose lives are worth living, whose lives have value, and whose lives are as valuable as anyone else's, and we ought to protect that. That was Marcus Anthony Hunter, African-American studies professor at UCLA, talking to us about Latasha Harlins. I'll say her name, her life, her legacy on the 30th anniversary of her death. Thank you so much, Marcus. Thank you. Well, with COVID vaccines on the way, many of us are starting to see some daybreak after what has felt like a very long, dark night. And yet, let's be real, we're all still figuring out how to heal from this past year. Well, we here at Take Two, we have been collaborating with USC's Center for Religious and Civic Culture. And in just a minute, we'll hear reflections from Reverend Najuma Smith-Pollard. If you've ever heard her here before, you know she's going to soothe your soul. Stay with me. You're back with Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. I'm Austin Cross in for A. Martinez. A year ago today, the coronavirus pandemic had taken hold of our lives. We were bracing for an imminent quarantine when, come March 19th, the governor would tell us all to stay home. That is, if we could. And to be clear, many could not. There's so much that has been lost, but also some things gained. So now, as we slowly emerge from this strange time, we want to reflect on where we've been and where we're headed. To do that, we've partnered with USC's Center for Religious and Civic Culture and commissioned some sermons from faith leaders from around our country. 
Today, we hear from Reverend Dr. Najuma Smith-Pollard. She's the program manager for the USC Cecil Murray Center for Community Engagement. She's also senior pastor at Word of Encouragement Church in Los Angeles. Her sermon is titled, Making It to the Other Side. Luke chapter 8:22 reads, One day Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. Several years ago, I had the privilege of traveling to Egypt and Israel. While on that trip, we took a boat ride across the Galilean Sea. It was the sea in which Jesus traversed a few times with his disciples. The purpose of our boat trip was to give us a sense of how long they would have been at sea and a sense of how the miracle would have played out for the disciples. What should have been for the disciples a simple two-hour boat ride turned into an overnight fiasco for the disciples as an unexpected storm rose up and delayed their travel. It made sense on that trip why the disciples lost hope when faced with a storm, winds, and rain. All they really wanted was to get to the other side. The other side represented hope calm, security, safety, and even some rest after all the healing work that had just taken place. Yet they were stuck on a boat, and the other side was close, yet so far away. Passing through this pandemic has been like a stormy quest of trying to get to the other side. In the beginning, many people have said things like, we'll get on the other side of this disease. But we're coming up on one year, and we're still not on the other side. What we expected to be a simple two-week, then two-month shutdown is now climbing to a 12-month process. 500,000-plus lives lost. Lost businesses, lost wages, lost members, lost buildings. So much loss. You get the point. And we're still not on the other side. Some days the weight of this storm pounds down so hard the other side feels so far away. As a pastor, it is my role to preach the good news in the text. And the good news in this text of Luke is that the disciples eventually get to the other side with Jesus, but not without wrestling with a very long night. I have a similar prophetic role in the midst of this multi-layer pandemic, all the racial and political tensions we've contended with, which is to help congregation and community stay in the boat or home and survive the storm the best they can. And to shed light that even if it feels so far away with the right sailing mate or mates, i.e. Jesus, faith, hope, belief, prayer, and collective work to survive and thrive at sea, there is a brighter side a better side, a reimagined side, a healthier side, a more equitable side, a side for the unhoused, a side for the undocumented, a side that honors indigenous people, black people, Latinx people, queer and trans people, a safer shores side on the other side. I am hopeful about the other side. And my prayer every day is God, please don't let us down (laughs) when we get to the other side. Mm, 
That was Reverend Dr. Najuma Smith-Pollard with her sermon, Making It to the Other Side. You can read her text and that of several other faith leaders in our community at crcc.usc.edu. You will see a report pinned to that main page titled Bridges Over Troubled Waters. Coming up, I will tell you the story of Charles and Willa Bruce. They were some of the first people to build a community in Manhattan Beach back in the early 1910s. They built a lovely resort there. It was very popular. And oh, by the way, they also happened to be black. And that fact made their time there anything but easy. They were ultimately forced out. Well, now their descendants are asking officials to make things right. That story in just one minute. Stay with me. You're listening to Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and most places where you get your podcasts. I'm Austin Cross, in for A. Martinez. About a hundred years ago, Manhattan Beach was home to a thriving black community. And at the center of it was a beach resort owned by Willa and Charles Bruce. But to go to Bruce's Beach today, you would find little more than a plaque to signify the once prosperous business and neighborhood. The city seized the Bruce's property through eminent domain laws, the result of a racially motivated effort against the family. This was such an injustice that was inflicted upon not just Charles and Willa Bruce, but generations of their descendants who almost certainly would have been millionaires had they been allowed to keep that beachfront land. That's L.A. County Supervisor Janice Hahn speaking there. The county currently owns what used to be the Bruce's Beach property, and now Hahn is looking at ways to provide that family with some degree of justice. For more, we're joined by Bruce family spokesperson and relative Dwayne Yellowfeather Shepherd. Welcome. Thank you. Also with us is historian Allison Rose Jefferson, author of the book Living the California Dream, African-American Leisure Sites During the Jim Crow Era. Hello to you, Allison. And hello, thank you for inviting me to participate today. Of course, before we get into what's going on today, Allison, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the black community in Manhattan Beach way back in the 1920s. If you could maybe paint a picture for us of what life was like at this resort. I imagine it was pretty great. Well, yes, it was pretty great. You had a small African-American community that had developed uh, around the Bruce's Lodge there. And that's how the area got to be known as Bruce's Beach. So it was a place where it was pretty rural uh, in comparison to looking at Central Avenue in Los Angeles, uh, where most of the African-Americans lived that were coming to the beach, dirt roads in certain places. You could take the red car down. It would take you about an hour from Los Angeles. But you had this beautiful beach that you could use and enjoy, and you had the beautiful views that were there as well. Well, Dwayne, I really want to know what happened between the city of Manhattan Beach and the Bruce family. The uh, Ku Klux Klan started pressuring the Manhattan Beach City Council and also 
the Manhattan Beach Police Department to try and force the uh, Bruce Beach Resort to close uh, and for people to not participate there. They had 24-7 Ku Klux Klan phone campaigns harassing uh, Mrs. Bruce. They burnt mattresses under the deck of the property. They burnt a cross there. They uh, slashed tires of the participants that came there to enjoy the leisure area. They also colluded with the police department and then ended up putting in 10-minute parking meters for people that were visiting the beach to go out and swim in the beach. And then the owner of the property, George Peck, who they tried to praise on that plaque that's there now, uh, was the main culprit in putting up a uh, no trespassing sign right in front of the property. And uh, it was a restaurant, a dance hall, and a bathhouse. And uh, people could not go out straight into the water in front of the property. They'd have to walk a quarter mile each direction from the property in order to get into the water. And that still did not deter Mrs. Bruce and Mr. Bruce from keeping their property there and keeping their enterprise going. After a while, they decided, well, if this is not going to run them off, we're going to take the property as eminent domain and make it a park. The Bruce family fought them for three, four years in court, asked for a payment of $35,000 for each lot and $50,000 in punitive damages, which they did not get. In the end, their settlement was only $14,125, and it took them three years to get that. In the meantime, they ended up leaving Manhattan Beach uh, in terror uh, and moving to the east side of Los Angeles near downtown ended up working as uh, as cooks in the diners. And by 1934, Mrs. Bruce had passed away just from the stress of the whole situation. And since so much of this conversation is about where do we go from here, I'm wondering if you can tell me, you know, what was the effect on the family over the years, over the past seven decades? Well, it was an, it was an economic and emotional scar on the family. It was something that we didn't talk about very often. It did come up from time to time. It was handed down as family folklore. Uh, I'm not a member of the immediate family, but even from the extended family, we knew about it. But the economic effect on the family by losing that that revenue that was coming in for 96 years, that was an enterprise. They were a precursor to, uh, uh, to the Venice Beach Boardwalk. These people were the founders, pretty much, of Manhattan Beach. They would have been very lucrative uh, business owners. And by losing that, you know, we've lost money that could be used to incubate businesses for the family. We've lost uh, student tuitions for college. I mean, there's a number of things, a generational wealth that has just been wiped out. And that, that needs to be corrected. Well, you know, Dwayne, I actually ended up looking up uh, the amount that they were paid off, just over $14,000 in an inflation calculator. And today, it's really just over about $200,000 is what they were paid. But today, L.A. County currently owns the land that those two lots are on, and they're worth millions of dollars each. So, Dwayne, you've had a few meetings with Supervisor Janice Hahn about potential restitution for the Bruce family. Here's what she shared with us when we spoke to her recently. I'm exploring everything from transferring the property back to the family to paying the family the present value of this property to transferring the property but entering into a lease agreement with the Bruce family so that uh, the county would pay rent. So, Dwayne, I want to ask, what does justice actually look like uh, to you and the Bruce family here? Well, 
I was in a meeting with Supervisor Horn and with the direct descendant, Anthony Bruce, his great, great, great grandson of uh, Charles and Willa Bruce. And there has been an agreement made on how we would like the land transferred back to the family. Supervisor Hahn has committed to making sure that it happens. And we are thinking about possibly just taking the uh, land, taking the ownership back and then leasing the property back to the County of Los Angeles so they can continue to have the lifeguard stationed there. My next step, because that takes care of the immediate family, my next step is to make sure that Manhattan Beach pays restitution for what they've done to our family and for the um, loss of revenue for the past 96 years as well. And I actually want to ask about that. What has been the attitude from the city of Manhattan Beach, from community members, when you have asked for that form of restitution? I can't imagine it would be great, Dwayne. Uh, no, it wasn't. And uh, it's been a very unpleasant process. We haven't talked to the family at all until approximately uh, a week ago and asked us to be involved with their Bruce Beach Task Force. And as you can see, I'm not very hard to find. We're talking with historian Allison Rose Jefferson and Bruce family spokesperson and relative Dwayne Yellowfeather Shepherd. Dwayne, you mentioned this task force. What are they currently asking for right now and where do things stand right now? I've had a couple of calls from the uh, task force uh, chairperson, but it wasn't to ask me about anything that give any suggestions to the task force. From what I have seen, they want the city council to give a public apology to the Bruce family. Uh, we had to correct the fact that they were asking the Bruce family to create that apology. Uh, so that, that's not going to happen. There was also a proposal to restore the land to the Bruce family. There was also a proposal to build a uh, some type of a reception center and do some artwork alluding to the history of Bruce's Beach and Manhattan Beach. And then there's been an ad in the Manhattan Beach, uh, I forgot the name of the newspaper, where the concerned citizens of Manhattan Beach have said that uh, Manhattan Beach is not a racist city and that they want the city council to disband the task force. Allison, you're also working with the city of Santa Monica, actually, to reconcile with its similar history of racism. That story really got me, too. What kind of conversations are you having with them there? So um, our project in Santa Monica is the Belmar History Plus Art Project, and we are commemorating and recognizing the African-American history in the beach neighborhoods near the Civic Center area that were uh, removed through various land development expansion deals for the Civic Center and also the 10 Freeway that came through Santa Monica. There was still racism and discrimination that went on, but it was not what went on in Manhattan Beach in terms of the community being erased. The community was pushed around a bit in terms of where it lived, but there is still a historic African-American community in Santa Monica. And there were several different attempts to establish beachfront property, amusement and uh, resort facilities from the teens all the way to the 1950s. And all of those were foiled due to various kinds of uh, abuses of public power, of subterfuge measures in terms of discrimination and all of those things in that vein. Well, I'll put this to you, Dwayne, because I know that, as, as Allison's mentioned here, there are several stories, several more stories we probably haven't even heard of involving Black Americans who had their chance at building generational wealth 
really ripped away uh, due to racist policies. And I'm wondering, as you kind of push for this justice now, as you try to create these changes now, have you faced any sort of modern day backlash? Certainly with uh, Manhattan Beach and then during the protest of uh, George Floyd, you know, we, we heard some minor things. Uh, and so we've stood our ground. We're not the kind of family that negotiates with races. We fight them and we fight them until we win. We have a hundred year plan. Once I'm gone, the next generation will pick it up. The next generation after them will pick it up and we will keep fighting until we get justice for our family. So no matter what someone does, no matter what they say, they're not going to stop the momentum of the Bruce family to get justice for what was done to our family. That's historian Allison Rose Jefferson. She's author of the book Living the California Dream, African-American Leisure Sites During the Jim Crow Era. And we also heard there from Bruce Family spokesperson and relative Dwayne Yellowfeather Shepherd. Thank you both so much for making the time for this conversation. Thank you for having us. We really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Austin, for inviting us. Well, we did reach out to Manhattan Beach about the story, but we have not yet heard back. The city is, of course, scheduled to hear recommendations from Bruce's Beach Task Force tonight at tonight's council meeting. We will bring you an update when we get one. Thank you so much for joining us for Take Two today. I'm Austin Cross in for A. Martinez. A. Martinez, by the way, some of you might have noticed, is guest hosting on NPR's Morning Edition this week. It's so nice to watch our boy shine. Show them how we do it here in L.A., right? All right, send him some love on Twitter, A. Martinez L.A. Well, if you missed any of today's shows, I know A. Martinez says it a lot, but I think you missed a pretty good one. If you are at all curious about what you missed, we, much like a lot of your friends, I'm sure, also have a podcast You can find us wherever you get your pods or at take2.org. We'll be back again tomorrow. See you, everybody. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.